believe it or not, we will be in Second Corinthians today. But right now, I need for you to. I you did, but I need for you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter nineteen. Second Chronicles nineteen. We're going to take a look at nineteen and twenty. Lord willing, this morning. Uh, I do want you to know that uh, you know they keep these rooms at sixty-eight degrees, and this is the first time when it was set at 68 degrees that it really feels warm in here compared to outside. Isn't that right? You know, usually 68 degrees, I'm freezing. So, all right. Throughout Scripture, God gives us a glimpse of, uh, into the lives of, of individuals who love Him. And uh, today we're going to take a look at the, and learn, hopefully, from the life of King Jehoshaphat. These lives that are recorded for us in Scripture, they're not always perfect. Uh, and at times they make ungodly choices. But nonetheless, their lives are forever recorded for us in God's eternal word for us to learn from, for us to look at and avoid the pitfalls and embrace the good things. And so in, in 2 Chronicles 19 and 20, it's recorded for us the events of the in the life of King Jehoshaphat. And we're going to do a flyby uh, in this king's life. Uh, he's a li- he was a king who, who loved God and he, he strived to, to walk according to his word. And there's things that we can learn. And I, 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 that's my prayer this morning. And so, again, let's go to the Lord in prayer and and dedicate our time to him this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have preserved for us everything that you want us to have for godliness. Um, We recognize the fact, Lord, that uh, our hearts desperately need your word to know and to understand. And I pray that even as we have a chance to look at it again this morning, that you would... uh, Convict us where we need to be convicted. You would challenge us where we need to be challenged. But I pray that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, last week we we took a look at 1 Kings 22. And and we saw that Jehoshaphat made a foolish decision. Uh, He made a foolish alliance with King Ahab to go to war with him. And, and Jehoshaphat was, was quick to align himself with this wicked king, with Ahab, before really counsel, uh, seeking counsel with the Lord. And, and in 1 Kings 22, King Ahab does ask Jehoshaphat, will you go with me into battle? And, and Jehoshaphat's response wasn't just a merely yes. You know, it was it was absolutely and I as I looked at this you know he says he says I am as you are my people as your people and your horse excuse me my horses are as your horses and that's just an emphatic yes Uh, it was just a direct I am willing I'm going to do this but we learned that it was before he sought counsel for the Lord now this is neither here nor there okay as I looked at his response, sometimes I thought in my own life, wouldn't it be fun just to talk like that? You know, 
we have three grown children, and uh, all three of them got married within 11 months of each other. And so the last couple of years we spent moving them out of their single apartment into a double apartment, which they're going to live with with their spouse. And then they all bought homes, and so then we spent time moving them out of those apartments into their new homes. And don't get me wrong, you know, it's a privilege as a father to be able to do those things for your children. Uh, and, you know, and I always, it was, they were always quick to ask me what my schedule was like so that it would coordinate with when they wanted to move. You know, and so when they asked to move, I'm now wishing I would have said something like, I am as you are. My truck is your truck. My muscle is your muscle, you know? So. But when uh, Jehoshaphat goes headstrong and says, yes, I am with you, as we continue to read last, you know, last week as we went through 1 Kings 22, we see that this battle did not fare well with King Ahab. We saw God's final judgment on a man that at every turn, because of the, the sinful pride of his heart, chose to oppose God at everything. And uh, the nation of Israel was defeated. The, the people were scattered, as the, the prophets said would happen. And that's where our story picks up in Second Chronicles 19. Look at verse 1. It says that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Now, this is a stiff rebuke from Jehu. And it's also the first lesson that we learn in Jehoshaphat's life. We need to avoid unbiblical relationships, unbiblical alliances. And here in verse 2, Jehu is speaking of Jehoshaphat's alliance with, king, uh, with the Israel's king, Ahab. And as we've learned before, he was a wicked king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He caused Israel to sin. And Jehu is condemning Jehoshaphat for this unbiblical alliance with a, with a pagan king. When he says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the, the Lord? The, the word love here, it carries the idea of, a, of political ties rather than emotional ties. And Jehu is condemning Jehoshaphat for entering into a helping alliance with one who hated our Lord. And this is not the only time that Jehoshaphat enters into an ungodly alliance. And, and I need for you to go to chapter 20 of Second Chronicles and drop down to verse 35. We see it happen again here. In verse 35 of chapter 20, it says, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah. Now, this is Ahab's son, okay, the king of Israel. And then it says this in verse 35, by doing this, he acted wickedly. He acted wickedly by doing this. And so he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. 
And they made the ships in Izan um, Geber. And then Eliezer the prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying in verse 37, Because you have allied yourself with um, Ahiza, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. Again, we don't know the, the reason why Jehoshaphat repeats this sinful act, uh, uh, but he does. Uh, he should have avoided the aligning himself with, with these wicked kings. We need to remember that the purpose of the nation of Israel, they were set apart by God to bring witness to the world of his grace and his salvation. The nation of Israel was set apart to emulate God's attributes of holiness. As the children of Israel were called to love and serve God and separate themselves from the immorality and uncleanness around them, so too believers today must heed the sovereign call and bear God's image and obey his word, obey his commands. We're called to be holy since the Holy One has identified himself with us. 1 Peter 1.16 tells us that we are to be holy we shall be holy as as a Lord is holy. I need for you to take your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians now. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. Second Corinthians chapter six. We'll begin in verse fourteen. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this in verse 14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. And then he goes on to ask some rhetorical questions here. And he says, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their, from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And then verse 18, he says, and he says I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The Apostle Paul is telling us that, that, that saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces this radical transformation in every aspect of a person's life. Christians are new creatures that have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into this new kingdom, the kingdom of light. We're no longer bound to Satan's kingdom. Believers and unbelievers inhabit two different worlds. Christians are in Christ's kingdom, which is characterized by righteousness and light and eternal life. Unbelievers belong to Satan's kingdom, which is characterized by lawlessness, darkness, and spiritual death. Now, now please listen to me. I'm not saying that we are to void unbelievers completely. 
that would be impossible and the scriptures do not teach that what i'm i am saying is this we just need to remember that our relationships between believers and unbelievers are limited to the temporal and the external we still have relationships with unbelievers you know it could be an unbelieving spouse it could be unbelieving family members an unbelieving boss or co-workers we may enjoy the same hobbies as unbelievers hold the same political views but we need to remember that these are temporal external on a spiritual level believers and unbelievers live in two completely different worlds as believers we cannot live in both worlds first john 2 15 says do not love the world nor the things of the world for if anyone loves the world and loves uh, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the boastful pride of life is not from the father but is from the world the world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of god lives forever James 4 4 reminds us that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so the, the focus of our relationship with unbelievers is to be a light of the gospel, the light of God in their lives to them, to lead them to Christ. Now let me show you this a different way. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing this in the context uh, for this passage. It, it deals with Christian liberty. Uh, you know, we have the liberty to do things that are not explicitly forbidden in Scripture as long as we do not sear our own conscience. And however, the Apostle Paul is speaking to uh, the believer here and letting them understand that they can refuse to be involved in their Christian liberty or to use their Christian liberty. But in order to make that decision, it's all for the sake of bringing a non-believer into the presence of the gospel, into the presence of Christ. Look at verse 19, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Again, this deals with Christian liberty. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though, my, though not myself being under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are, who are without the law. And then in verse 22, he just says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that, I may by all means save some. So we need to rem remember that our, our, our relationship with other people, with unbelievers, 
is, is something that is temporal. It's ex- external. And again, our application with this would be this. Our sole purpose in our relationships that we have with unbelievers is to be the light of the gospel to them. And I think as we look at Jehoshaphat's life, he was so quick to align himself with an ungodly king. That relationship with this ungodly king influenced Jehoshaphat rather than Jehoshaphat influencing King Ahab. And that's what we need to remember here. And so this is why I believe that Jehoshaphat was being rebuked by Jehu. Go ahead and turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. So in verse 2, we see Jehu gives this, this stiff rebuke. And then in verse 3, Jehu gives this commendation. Look at verse 3. He says, But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Ashereth from the, from the land and have set your heart to seek God. That phrase here where it says, set your heart to seek God, it carries the idea of being fixed upon or, or uh, uh, securely established in. And that's something that Jehoshaphat would be characterized by. Uh, we talked about this last week when Corbett taught. Uh, he referenced 2 Chronicles chapter 17. I need for you to flip back there. So turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 17. I need for you to see this. Jehoshaphat takes the throne after his father Asa dies. And look at verse 3, 2 Chronicles 17, 3. It says that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed in the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the balls. But sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought the tr- brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor he took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again he removed the high places in the ashram from Judah in verses 7 and 8 we learn that Jehoshaphat sends out godly men to teach the entire area of Judah the scriptures so that they could understand who God is and how they could worship him correctly. And then look at verse 9. It says that they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went out throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now the dread of the Lord was on the kingdoms of the land, of the lands which were around Judah, so they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Turn back to chapter 19. We learn here in chapter 19 that Jehoshaphat just did not send out representatives to teach people about God. He went with them. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is the area that we're looking at, and this is the area where he went out with his representatives to go teach once again who God is 
and how people are to approach him. And so I think this brings us to our next lesson that we can learn from Jehoshaphat is that we are to be ambassadors for Christ's kingdom. Just as Jehoshaphat was. We are to be ambassadors. Once again, I need for you to turn to 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this time. Beginning in verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. It says, therefore, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, look at verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then verse 21, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know, so oftentimes in our lives, we get distracted with the purpose of our life. So oftentimes the world kind of comes in on us and we, we lose our focus. This passage in, in 2 Corinthians, it reminds us of our distinctives, not only as the church of God, as, as the corporate body, but also as individuals who make up this corporate body, make up the church. Christ's church's mission is evangelism. And this passage clearly articulates the heart and soul of our responsibility as we represent Christ in the world. God has called every believer, not just pastors or elders or missionaries, to proclaim the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation. The glorious good news that God has given us to give to the lost is that sinners can be restored to a holy God. Verse 18 again says that all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. You know, from the foundation of the world, God freely, apart from any outside influence, determined to save sinners to an eternity so that his glory can be dis uh, uh, on display. He chose those he would rescue from his own wrath. On sin and this this verse clearly teaches that being reconciled to God is an act of God alone it's not something that man does but what he receives it's not what man accomplishes but what he embraces when he repents and believes I like the way John MacArthur said it he said, reconciliation does not happen when man decides to stop rejecting God, but when God decides to stop rejecting man. Again, he says in verse 18 that all these things are from God. Verse 19, 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Verse 20, we are now ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. So God reconciles man to himself and then he gives man the blessing to be reconcilers to the world. So those who are now in Christ are his ambassadors. <clears throat> By way of application, I think it's important for us to be reminded of the essentials of the gospel. So oftentimes in the world that we live in, there's a false, false gospel that's presented. And when there's a false gospel, there is a false profession of faith. So, in a nutshell, we don't really have a whole lot of time to go through. We could do a lesson on all these, but here are some of the essential elements of the gospel. First, God is the creator of all things. And the implication of that is that, therefore, we are accountable to him alone. Isaiah 45 says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, His Maker, Creator, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and I shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. God is the Creator, and everything created is accountable to him. The second essential element of the gospel is that man has fallen short of God's perfection and deserves his eternal wrath. Boy, even if you... I don't need to be a spoiler alert for the lesson in Tom's lesson if you've not heard Tom yet this morning, but it's the battle of Armageddon and you see the salvation heart of God still calling people to himself. But those who want to stay in their sin are going to be separated from him forever. Ezekiel 18 says, Behold, the souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A third essential element of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is God's only provision for sin. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, but he was pierced through, our trans uh, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we just saw earlier. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then finally, the fourth essential element of the gospel is that it's not enough to intellectually acknowledge these truths 
I can understand the gospel, those three points, but I must choose to submit my life to them. I must repent. That's exactly what Jesus said. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 19. 2 Chronicles 19. So Jehoshaphat did not just, you know, go throughout the land and teach men about salvation and who God is and how to worship him. But then he goes and he appoints leaders in every place where he went out who exhibited spiritual qualifications to continue to live out a life that would be pleasing to the Lord. So back in 2 Chronicles 19, look at verse 5. He talks about that he appointed judges. Now don't think of this as like a judge that you and I would know, but these are the leaders of the community, leaders in the land who would represent God in these cities. Verse 6 he says to these judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render, render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Verse 8. In Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites and the priests and some of the heads of the fathers of households of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and to the judge to just uh, to judge disputes among the inhabitants of the Jerus of Jerusalem. And then he charged them. Look what he says in verse nine. He says, you shall do all this in the fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. Whenever a dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinance, you shall warn them so that they may not be guilty before the Lord, the, and wrath may not come upon you and your brethren. Thus you shall do, and you will not be guilty. And then verse 11, he says, And Amariah, the chief priests, behold, or excuse me, will be over you, and all that pertains to the Lord, and Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, and all that pertains to the king, also the Levites shall be officers before you. Act resolutely, and the Lord be with the upright. And so with this, I think this brings us to our next lesson. We learn what the characteristics of what spiritual leadership entails and I want to remind us that that spiritual leadership is not, again, for a select few of Christians. It's from everyone who has repented of their sins. It's for every believer. These characteristics are characteristics that we need to strive for. And, and we learn these things as we see what Jehoshaphat has done. Spiritual leadership, we learn is accountability to God. Accountability to God. Look at verse 6 again. It says, consider what you're doing. 
you're not judging for yourself or for man, but for the Lord. And when you judge, he is going to be there with you, is what it says. So spiritual leadership is accountability to God. Uh, spiritual leadership is integrity and honesty. In verse 7, he says, Fear the Lord. May the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part of unrighteousness or partiality or, or the taking of a bribe. Thirdly, we see that, that spiritual leadership is loyalty to God. Loyalty to God. He says, thus you shall do in fear of the Lord faithfully and wholeheartedly. Someone once said that, that loyalty to God is just being concerned with God's reputation. We also see that, that spiritual leadership is concerned with righteousness. In verse 10, he says, Whenever dispute comes to you from your brethren who live in their cities between blood and blood, okay, this could be even a blood relative that has a dispute, between law and commandment, statutes and ordinances, you shall warn them so that they may not be guilty before the Lord. Oh, it would be so easy to judge in favor of one person versus another person because you kind of like this person over here, not this one. Spiritual leadership is concerned with God's righteousness, with truth. And then finally, we see that spiritual leadership is having courage in the Lord. Verse 11 says, just says this, Act resolutely, and the Lord will be with the upright. Application with our own lives is I would have you during this coming week, maybe tonight when you're stormed, you're iced in, tomorrow, evaluate these spiritual leadership qualifications. Where do you fall? Where, where are you growing in? Where do, which areas do you struggle in? So that would be the application. And now that moves us to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It says that now that it came about after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Meunites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in the uh, Hazazon Temur, or that is the Injeti. This is where they are coming from, and that is where they encamped there in Injeti. And the distance from Injeti to Jerusalem is about 25 miles. And so as you look at verse 3, we see that Jehoshaphat has two responses. His first response in verse 3 was that he was afraid. You guys, this is an appropriate response uh, given the circumstances. You've got an army that's on your doorstep, ready and willing to take over. But look at his immediate second response in verse 3. So he was afraid, but his second response, Jehoshaphat turned his attention to seek the Lord. 
And then he calls the nation to do the same. Keep reading. Jehoshaphat proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Verse 4, so that Judah gathered together and to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Can you imagine? Guys, we all understand what's going on in the Middle East right now. Could you understand or just bear with me and think through this? If there was a God-fearing leader in the nation of Israel, can you just see them doing this, what Jehoshaphat is doing? And what a huge difference it would make, in a sense. It just blows my mind what would happen if God would put that leader in place, what's going on in Israel right now. The world would not understand it, that's for sure. Those who are believers, I think we'd all be excited and we'd be calling on God as well to make his salvation known. And so here, Jehoshaphat, he's afraid, but then he quickly seeks the Lord and then he calls the nation of Judah to do the same. You know, as I was studying this passage, the question that kept coming to mind is, is what kind of man has the inclination to quickly seek God in times of trouble? What kind of person goes to the Lord first when troubles come? Now, not everybody goes to the Lord first when trouble. In fact, some most people, they go to the Lord as a last resort. If anyone seeks God, uh, it's only because God is at work in that person's heart, drawing that person to himself. We understand that. It's very clear from Scripture that the unbeliever does not seek God. There is none who seeks after God, Romans 3 says. Our, our, our sinful flesh is hostile toward God. But, but let me ask you this, and I'd like some feedback. On the believer, with someone who is a genuine Christian, what drives a person to have as his or her first response to call upon God for help in times of trouble? What are the characteristics of a person who diligently seeks God like that? What are your thoughts? Humility? Wisdom? Yeah. And, and it's a quick realization. Oh my goodness, I can't do this. Dependence on the Lord. Yeah. Dependence on the Lord because they know the character of whom they serve. Here's some that I came up with that, you know, and a lot of these will over, overlap, overlap with one another. But this brings us to our fourth thing that we can learn from this passage. Characteristics of a God seeker. And again, some of these characteristics will overlap and some of these will be brought out as we look at Jehoshaphat's prayer here in a minute. But here are a few that I came up as I studied this lesson. First, someone who intimately knows God. Psalm 9:10 says, Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have 
not forsaken those who seek you. The word know here in Psalm 9, it, it means to be personally acquainted with. It means to know through experience. God, I trust you. I know you. Another characteristic is someone who has genuine biblical faith in the character of God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. Another characteristic is someone who knows that God delights in being sought after. Do you know that God delights when we come to Him? Now, Proverbs 8, 17, that whole chapter deals with wisdom. Uh, but we know that wisdom comes from God. And Proverbs 8, 17 says, um, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. God de delights in being sought after. And then the last one that I, I came up with is a characteristic of someone who, who, who is a God seeker is someone who's quick to give God full recognition in all things. Full recognition in all things. The good and the bad. The good and the bad. Now, I don't know if I've shared this illustration with you, and Carla will deny this, okay? She will absolutely deny it. I think it has something to do with her memory, not mine, okay? All right. That's right. Actually, I teach this lesson again next, so she's, she's leaving, so I have, I'll be my own card. <laughs> so anyway, uh, years ago, I mean, we're talking maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago. Maybe it's my memory that's going. We were standing in line at Lowe's, ready to check out. It was towards the close of Lowe's. It was when they were closing, okay? Now, back then, believe it or not, they didn't have self-checkout. All right, so no self-checkout. They only had one cashier lane open. We were like number four in line. And the first person was having some difficulty getting checked out. And I have a habit of showing my impatience by grabbing my car keys and starting to twirl them on my finger. Okay, well, my wife, knowing me the way she does, grabs my arm and pulls me close and whispers in my ear, God has a plan. And I look at her and say, but I have a plan too. <laughs> she grabs me closer and says, yes, but God's plan is always better. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and since then, I don't know if I've, I try to remember that God always has a plan. And his plan is always better. And someone who seeks God, someone who's a God seeker, gives full recognition to God in all things. Psalm 105 says this. 
It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his, de- his deeds among the peoples. Tell people about it. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the, the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord his, and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done. His marvels and judgments uh, uttered by his mouth. Remember that God's plan is always better. And if we look into Jehoshaphat's prayer, we, we get a better glimpse at his, at his heart. We see some of the characteristics of that things that we just mentioned reflected in this prayer. Look at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers. And look at this. He says, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not the ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? He understands that the answer is to that is yes. And he says, power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Did you not know, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? They have lived in it. They have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us? the sword or judgment, pestilence or famine. We all stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house and cry to you in our distress and you will hear and deliver us. Now behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we, uh, nor do we know what to do but our eyes are on you. And in verse 13, they wait. You know, there are many things that we can point out in this prayer that lets us see Jehoshaphat's heart. However, there's one that stands out to me. Look at verse 9 again. It says, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, We will stand before this house, before you, for your name is in this house and cry to you in our distress. Look at this. You will hear and deliver us. And this brings us to our our last lesson. We need to remember that our God delights in rescuing his people. Our God delights in. In rescuing his people. I need for you to turn to the New Testament again. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 4. We read. When the fullness of time came. 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. In eternity past, God had set a time to send forth the second person of the Trinity to be man's redeemer, to be man's rescuer. Before sin had entered the world, our God determined in his heart that he would reveal his nature as a rescuer. Jesus came at the exact time when the Father had established before the world that even it was created. Verse 3 of Galatians chapter 4 tells us that we were held in bondage to sin. We deserve nothing but God's eternal wrath because we could never keep any of his, his standards that he had set forth in his word. And at the end of verse 4, it says that Jesus was born under the law. Like every other man, Jesus was born under the law. Like every other Jew, he was under obligation to obey it. He would be judged by being conformed to what was written in the Old Testament. But because he lived a, in perfect obedience, he was able to redeem all other men and were under the law, who were under the law but not obedient to it. The application to this is simple. For those of you in this room who are still under God's eternal wrath, repent and believe the gospel. The gospel has been presented to you in this lesson, and you will be held accountable to it. But I beg you, be reconciled to Christ and let God prove to you that he delights in being your rescuer. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 20 and we'll finish up our time. In verse 13, the nation waits for God's response. And in verse 14, they get it. Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of all these other people, speaks. Verse 15. He says, listen, all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed. Because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up to the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight this battle. Station yourself. Stand to see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out and face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. In verse 19, it tells us that the only ones who were standing were the Levites who offered a loud praise to God. And then in verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out to the, uh, to the wilderness of Tekoa. This is what we're looking at. And our text continues. It says that Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, and, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Put your trust in the Lord your God. You will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love is everlasting. And when they began singing and praises, the Lord set him ambushes against the sons of Ammon and, and Moab and Mount Seir, who came out against Judah, so they were routed. I like verse 23. It says that the sons of, of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, so two against the one, and completely destroyed them. And look at the end of verse 23. Once they were done destroying them, they turned on each other and they helped to destroy one another. We don't know what the Lord did, but the Lord did it. His plan is always better. Then Judah came, verse 24, and to look out at the wilderness and they looked toward the multitude and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground and no one had escaped. Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry, and they were there three days taking the spoil because there was so much. They named that area Baraka, Valley of Blessing. And then we see Jehoshaphat's life comes to an end in verse 30. It just brings it in and says that the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for his God gave him rest on all sides. Now Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old and he became king and he reigned for 25 years. Verse 32, he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not depart from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. In this lesson, we've learned so many things. We've, we've learned that, that we need to avoid unbiblical relationships. We've learned that, that we are God's ambassadors to the lost. We've learned or we've been reminded that we're called to be spiritual leaders in our church. And being a spiritual leader means someone who continually seeks God. We've also learned and we need to continue to remember, especially when we interact with people day in and day out, is that our God delights in rescuing people. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're so thankful for the recounts that we see in your word. Men who loved you, men who desired to honor you, Yes, we can learn from their mistakes, and I pray that we do. But we also can learn from the right choices that they make. God, I pray that as we, as we leave this place, that you would keep us safe from the weather, keep us safe as we go about our lives. But God, I pray that you would keep us safe spiritually speaking as well. That we would think about these things that we've heard and and learn this morning and apply them where they need to be applied in our lives. God, we thank you that you love to rescue your people. We thank you that you love us. God, I pray that we would demonstrate our love for you in return by being obedient to the things that we've learned. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.